After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God to them or among them. But when Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, made uh, a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever felt like giving up? You guys are in core doctrine, right? That was the first word in my sermon. I was like, oh, see what the Lord's going to do here. Um, <clears throat> have you ever felt like giving up? Maybe you started out really optimistic about something and you were kind of gung-ho about it and you just were excited, but it did not turn out like you thought it would. Maybe a relationship, a job, trying to learn a new skill or a new hobby. I remember being young and wanting to learn how to play the guitar, and I got a guitar for Christmas one year, and I was sure that I was going to master it overnight, and I did not master it overnight. In fact, it sat in a closet for many years because it wasn't easy. Uh, it was harder than I thought. So several years later, as a teenager, I got it out of the closet, and Granddaddy tuned it for me, and I knew it was going to be hard this time. So I stayed at it for a while and eventually figured it out. Um, and over time, with help from others and staying committed to it, I learned how to play the guitar. We all have experiences like this in our lives, right? Where some things we want to do are more difficult than others, and we are tempted to give up. You know, learning guitar isn't really that big a deal. Learn guitar or don't learn, learn guitar, you know, it's not that big a deal if you don't learn how to play guitar, right? But other commitments have bigger consequences. We don't walk out on our spouses or our children. We don't break our promises when people are relying on us when things get hard. We work hard as Christians to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Beloved, how much more serious is this when it comes to our own commitment to following Jesus? Laboring for the fruit of the gospel is hard work. 
a hard work that many of us as new believers or even you know long-term believers are not prepared for. We're not taught how to deal with hard things. We start off very excited and motivated to follow Jesus, to give our lives for his glory and the pleasure and the growth of his kingdom, and then things get hard and we're tempted to give up. Perhaps you've been tempted to give up. Perhaps you're tempted to give up today if you're honest with yourself. You're kind of just going through the motions, doing the thing, coming to church. Ministry is hard, and the good news, if that is you this morning, is that you are not alone. Even pastors go through this. Here are some recent statistics on pastors. On average, pastors only last about five years in a church's ministry. Five years. That means I'm outside of the average. Thank the Lord. I've made it. 100%, 100, 100% of 1,000 pastors that were polled had a personal friend or colleague who left the ministry due to burnout, church conflict, or moral failure. You all may also know someone. 75% of pastors report being under extreme stress. 70% constantly fight depression. 70% also do not have someone in their lives they consider a close friend. This is pastors. But how about lay, lay folks, right? One of the big conversations that I hear in my circles among pastors is longevity. How do we stay? They, they say things like preach, pray, love, and stay. Preach, pray, love, and stay. This is the goal, the ambition of a pastor. Now, of course, not everybody here is a pastor, but as church members, all of you are called to ministry. What will it take for you to not throw in the towel? What will it take for you to not give up? How will you maintain a vibrant and fruitful service in the body of Christ for years and years and years to come? Again, I'm sure, I, I, if I were a betting man, that everybody in here probably knows somebody that used to be in church that ain't in church no more. What happened? And how are you not going to be... In, in that category too one day. Why will you still be in church 10 years from now? Not only in church, but actively serving and laboring for the gospel. I believe the Apostle Paul demonstrates for us three must-haves in ministry in order for us to not give up. Three must-haves in ministry. Those are faithful friends, faithful labor, and a faithful God. Faithful friends, faithful labor, and a faithful God. Let's begin in verse 1. It says, after this. This is faithful friends. After this. After what? It's been four weeks since we were in Acts, right? Did the whole Gethsemane thing on Palm Sunday. Uh, Jack preached on the resurrection of the dead uh, and dealing with death on Easter morning. Jay preached uh, the Lord's Prayer. Johnny preached a a psalm on prayer for us and deliverance. Uh, So if you hadn't been with us, we like to preach through books of the Bible here. I thought about, well, should I do something else to kind of get back in the swing of things? And uh, the answer was no. You know, something that's really sweet about going through books of the Bible together because it just kind of keeps us together. You guys have had enough of whiplash, huh? Um, I've been kind of all over the place. Let's go back to where we started. By the way, I, I need to be careful. I've got plenty of <laughs> stuff to say this morning. But, you know, we, we um, started the book of Acts in June. Um, June will be a year since we've been going through the book of Acts. And um, when we started, Mariana didn't even know she was pregnant yet. We didn't, we, you know, we've had a whole baby since we've started. Um, who knows how many more babies will be born by the time we finish the book of Acts. Um, but praise the Lord for your faithfulness, hearing the word week after week after week and following along and being excited. I've missed it, and I'm thankful to, to preach this way 
um, to you. So we're going to keep it going. But what happened last? Well, we are on what the nerds call the second missionary journey of Paul. Uh, after returning to Antioch for a time, Paul sets out again for Macedonia, this time not taking Barnabas with him. They had a little scuffle uh, over Mark, and this time he takes with him Silas and Timothy. The Holy Spirit led them to Macedonia through a dream in the night, and they preached the gospel to those in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then Paul was sent away to Athens. Last we heard, Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Timothy and Silas stayed in that area of Macedonia, Berea, and Thessalonica, um, and he was in Athens waiting for them. Of course, Paul couldn't wait very long without preaching the gospel, so he immediately went to the synagogues, the marketplace, did his whole spiel. He even got the opportunity to preach before the Oropagus, and some mocked him in Athens. Some sort of just put off the message and said, we'll see you about this later. And others in Athens did believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and were baptized. And now there are Christians and churches all across the coast of Macedonia, but the Lord still was not finished. After this, Paul left Athens and went further south over across the water um, to Corinth. This is a new region called Achaia, and Corinth is kind of the biggest town in Achaia. And every time we reach a new town in the book of Acts, I feel like it's the burden of the preacher to tell you the context of that town. And that each town, you know, it seems like when the preacher says this, it's just worse than the last. This was an awful pagan town full of philosophical, you know, quandaries and, you know, all of this, these idols, you know, and uh, Corinth is the same. <laughs> just spare you the details. That's, Corinth was like all the rest of them. It's a bad place. Corinth particularly was known for sexual immorality. Uh, in fact, if uh, you were sexually promiscuous in those days, you might have even been called a Corinthianizer, kind of how we use sodomite today, right? That, that's how they were known. They were known for their sexual um, promiscuity. And God saves them. Isn't that good news? Perhaps you had a life known by sexual promiscuity at one point. God loves to save people like this. But take note here that even though Paul came with confidence in this um, awful place, he still did not believe it was wise to do it alone. He did the Athens mission by himself, right? Thankfully, he didn't get murdered. Um, but this time he's like, I'm not going to do that again. I need help. I don't know where Timothy and Silas are dragging their feet. Get down here, right? They're living the good life back in Berea. But this time, he decides to recruit some local assistants. Verse 2 and 3 says that he found a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. He found them. He went to see them. He searched for them. He recruited them. I picture Paul walking slowly into Corinth, tired and alone. For the first time, since all the cities that he visited and all the people that got saved, he doesn't go to the synagogue first to start kicking down doors with the gospel. He looks for friends. He looks for help. He looks for support before he does anything else. And in his search, the Lord blessed. He found a generous Jewish couple who were exiled from Rome and Italy, and it's not clear if this couple were already converts and had heard the gospel in another place somewhere and were saved, or if Paul ministered to them and they became Christians during this time. It's not 
totally clear. But either way, Paul sought them out and welcomed them into his ministry. Uh, and they are certainly believers based on this text and what else we know about Priscilla and Aquila. And what a joy it is to find fellow believers in a land of darkness. What a joy it is, right? Not only did they share Christ in common, but they also shared this common trait of tent making. And Paul was kind of adopted by this couple. They, they allowed him to work alongside them building tents so that they, they could have all their needs met. And um, he lived with them. And this was the beginning of a lifelong friendship in which they would become co-laborers for the ministry all the way to Asia and then back to Rome. Paul mentions them in the book of Romans and Corinthians and 1 Timothy. In Romans 16, Paul refers to Priscilla and Aquila as his fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for his life, to whom all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. The apostle strolled into Corinth with nothing but the clothes on his back. The Lord blessed him with friendship, a stable income, a place to live, and great encouragement to keep going in the ministry. Beloved, we need true friends in order to sustain and strengthen our service to the Lord. We have to. Ministry was never meant to be done alone. Even the Apostle Paul, who just preached to all the philosophers of the Oropagus, knew that he could not do this anymore without help, without support. We need faithful friends. We need each other. And I'm certain that there are folks even here, members of this church, who at times, perhaps even today, feel absolutely alone. All of us are starving for this, and it seems so hard to attain sometimes. There are men or women among us who would do anything for an Aquila and a Priscilla to come alongside them and be friends. I think all of us fall into this pit of loneliness during certain seasons of our lives, but the Lord said it best himself, that it's not good for man to be alone. Like this is the beginning of humanity. We're not meant to be alone. So God made a helper fit for him, and then he said, you know what, you guys work together, have dominion over this, over this earth, arm in arm for my glory. We're called to work together, as a husband and wife, or as a community of believers. No one can do true, lasting, sustainable ministry alone. So are you a Paul, or are you an Aquila and Priscilla? In other words, if you're a Paul, that means perhaps you're looking. You're looking. Do you need friendships? Based on Paul's example, look for it. Look for it. It is rare that friendships appear out of thin air. Paul looked. Paul worked for friends. And Paul was blessed with friends. I believe he can bless us too with good friends. It may take time. It may take months or years. Mariana has a wonderful testimony about that. She already shared once, right? Uh, but when we first moved here, it was hard. It was her hometown. People didn't know her. You know, they knew her as the kid who grew up here. She felt so alone. Over time, the Lord has blessed and given friends. Don't give up looking for faithful friends who will stick out their necks for you. And also, don't pass up friendships just because they're different than what you thought they'd be. You know, I never thought I, um, or I never felt this more than right after I got saved. The Lord saved me at 15, 16 years old, and I broke up with a girlfriend, and all of my um, friends at school weren't Christians, and suddenly I had found the Lord, and I was happy, but then I realized how lonely I was. 
I didn't have friends anymore. Here's a 16-year-old in school who felt completely alone, and our church was right beside the school, so many afternoons I would just walk over to the church and burden the pastor and distract him and bother him. Uh, Of course, he loved me. I told him what I was going through. And so one day we hopped in his minivan, and we went to his house where his wife was homeschooling his three kids under the age of eight years old. She made sandwiches for us, and he said, we'll be your friends. Here's a 33-year-old pastor, introverted, homeschool dad who wants to be my friend. Not what I pictured. God gave him me. Take the friends that God gives you. Don't be picky. I mean, be picky about the right stuff, right? But not about what you have in common. The friends God gives you may not be your age or into the same things as you, talk like you or look like you. This is the beautiful thing about Christian friendship. You know, Paul was single. They were married. They had their own thing going. You know, they may have even had children. They were already working and living their lives. And we don't know how old they were in comparison to Paul, but that's who the Lord gave. And regardless, it didn't matter because they had Christ in common. And this is what bound them together for the mission. And you know what? This goes for kids too. You know, I'm trying to get better at giving, a, giving some kids application, right? Here's your application this Sunday. I know we're not a church with a lot of kids right now, right? We don't have a lot of young families in our church. I love that you guys sit up front and sit together. I, I think that's awesome. Keeps me engaged, keeps you engaged. I like preaching to you. Um, but here's the deal. When I was a lonely, lonely teenage boy in my church, like the only teenage boy in my church, the Lord gave me friends. We didn't have a big, giant, ginormous youth group, and we were booming. And I know sometimes when we're young, sixth grade and ninth grade sound like worlds apart. Sixth grade and ninth grade can't be friends with each other. Or even worse, you know, a ninth grader can't be friends with, you know, a 50-year-old. That's bizarre. But listen, folks in this church love you, and they want to be your friends. Hear them out. Give them a chance. They might even have gray hair. They might pick on you or talk funny. They want to be your friends. Um, And the other families here do too. If someone, and here's another thing. If someone comes to you looking for friendship, like Paul did for Priscilla and Aquila, don't turn them down. Right? I mean, how, how quick. I One of the most atrocious things that I do is that when people are having a conversation with me and they ask how I'm doing, I say busy. Did you know how that makes people feel? You don't have time. I'm sorry. I, I bothered you. I'm, I'm working on that, right? I'm working on that. Show people when they are interested in pursuing you as a friend. They want to have dinner with you. They want to take you out a copy. They want to read books together. They want to pray with you. They want to be a friend to you. Be available. Say, yeah, you know what? Let's do something. Let's schedule something. You know, I, 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 this week is a lot going on, but you know what? Let's, let's work out the week after. I, I, want to, I want to do this. Let's make this a priority. Let's do it, right? Be available. How sad it is when we turn people away, even unintentionally sometimes. Don't give people a brick wall. Make yourself available. And again, this isn't about just being a match.com kind of church. We have a mission. What were they doing in verse 4? Verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So now Paul has friends, and what does he do? Jumps back in. Marketplace, I'm reasoning with people. I'm persuading them about the Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about this before, but you know what makes our message all the more persuasive? 
is when we're not doing it alone. When, 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 you know, Paul wasn't some like toothless hobo wandering around in Corinth saying, hey, you guys, I'm starting a new church, you know? Like he had Priscilla and Aquila, he had friendships, he had validity, you know? And so when we worship the Lord together with authenticity in public, oh, it's convicting. It's real. People can't help but see it and see something otherworldly. Our efforts in evangelism and gospel proclamation will be exponentially multiplied if we do it together. So let's do it together. I got a lot more stuff. Faithful labor. Let's move on. Faithful labor. We need friends. We also need to know what it looks like to labor for the gospel. Verse 5, Timothy and Silas finally make it back into the picture. And after all this time has passed, they finally left Macedonia and came down to Achaia to find Paul. It took a while to catch up with him, but they did not come empty-handed. We don't see it in this text, but Paul writes about their arrival in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's what he says in that chapter. When I was with you and I was in need, speaking to the people of Corinth, I did not burden anyone. Remember, he was making tents with Priscilla and Aquila. The brothers came uh, from Macedonia. They supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. He also writes about their arrival in, in, Philipp, in Philippians chapter 4. He says, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So Timothy and Silas were... They're getting cash from the Philippian church to take down to Achaia to help grow the church and keep Paul occupied with the word, which is what we're going to see. That's what it says in chapter in verse 5, that they came and found Paul, and he was then, because of their gift, I believe, occupied with the word. Like building tents was fun, but he could turn his attention to why he came to Corinth, right? He was occupied with the word. Uh, I believe this was a vocational freedom. Uh, Occupied is a variation of the word occupation, right? This was a vocational freedom, occupational freedom, um, so that he could continue preaching the gospel. The Macedonians gave this generous gift, and immediately he went to the synagogues and marketplaces preaching the gospel. And this is particularly relevant for me, and I think it's worth mentioning, and even for churches in our county. About half the churches in our association have bivocational pastors which means they are not fully funded by their churches to do the work of ministry alone. I am one of them. And there are times when the Lord supplies the need and he frees the worker up to give himself fully to the ministry. And there are other times when the Lord supplies a secular income like tent making. That was not any less of the Lord's faithful gift than this gift from Philippi. Um, so the Lord provides. The Lord may one day allow me to be fully occupied with the word here at Main Street. Uh, and that would be great if the Lord would decide to bless but even if Silas and Timothy never arrive here in Main Street, the mission doesn't change. You know? We don't, <laughs> we don't get checks in the mail from Philippi, right? But we have a mission. We have a mission. And that mission is to preach the word of God free of charge, which is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. But it's a beautiful phrase for all of us to think on, to be occupied with the word be occupied with the word. You may not be a full-time pastor or a missionary, but what would it look like for your life to be characterized as someone who's occupied with the word? When they see that brother, that sister, that member of Main Street, they think, they're just, they can't get over the Bible. <laughs> a 
was talking with somebody one time who said, yeah, that church, they just got a little too radical, you know, um, because they started preaching verse by verse and uh, made some hard doctrinal lines. Um, this is the first facet of our faithful labor. We're occupied with the word. What does it look like to labor faithfully for the Lord and his kingdom? To do it in a word-centered fashion, right? When, when we are rooted and grounded in the scriptures, everything we do, the moment we leave the scriptures or even biblical principles, our service to the Lord becomes unfaithful, at the very least unfruitful. We cannot serve the Lord faithfully apart from biblical truth, which is why we're a church that seeks to teach the truth of God's word here in this place. Part of our mission statement, right? We want to be a church occupied with the word in which God's word reverberates through the pews, changing hearts and renewing minds and inspiring us to be more faithful uh, in our service to the king, which is why we're about to read Proverbs together. Because we want to be a church that is occupied with the word together. We want to walk in wisdom. Reading Proverbs will help us to walk in wisdom and to serve the Lord more faithfully. But secondly, notice what Paul was doing in Achaia in the second half of verse 5. He was testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So his ministry was around the word and occupied with the word, and his ministry was preaching whom? What's the subtitle of our series in Acts? Right? The title. Proclaiming Christ. You haven't looked at the slide in a while. It's kind of become, uh, uh, you know, you see it every week. But Proclaiming Christ is the series. Every town that they went to, this was their goal. This was their mission. To proclaim Christ. To preach Him as the Messiah who came. He wasn't testifying to His apostleship boasting in his greatness. In fact, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, y'all know I came in weakness. I wasn't a good preacher. I came without eloquence. I came to preach Christ. Paul also wasn't promoting secondary or tertiary doctrines, which he would go on to write about later in his letters. His primary emphasis in the Corinthian synagogue and in the marketplace was the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wanted to prove to them that he was the Messiah, just as he had done in previous towns. Faithful service rendered to the Lord is gospel-centered. Everything we do is about Christ crucified and risen from the dead. This is why we preach. This is why we teach. This is why we disciple each other. This is why we evangelize the world. For the sake of the fame, of the knowledge, of the glory of Jesus. We're a gospel-centered church. Hear how Paul writes about his own ministry in Colossians 1, verse 24. I think this is on the screen. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God more fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all this energy that, is power, that he powerfully works within me. If we are going to suffer and toil and labor and struggle with all of our energy for something, it better be something good. 
Paul says that something is the gospel. If you're going to expend all that you got in this life, it's for Christ crucified and risen from the dead, proclaiming him as the riches of the glories of the mystery made manifold, revealed to the Gentiles. We warn and we proclaim and we teach with all wisdom to present everyone mature in Christ. This is Christ-centered ministry. So friends, why don't I stop right now as we do every Sunday and invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because there's nothing more important. There's no important part of this sermon than for you to hear that Jesus saves sinners. And here's how he does it. He came to earth, fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect life that you could never live. In his righteousness, he sacrificed his life, even unto death, death on a cross, bearing the full weight of God's wrath, which is hell for you and I, and then rose from the dead in victory over sin and death, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for sinners and anyone who would call upon his name and trust in him as Savior and Lord and King. And so faith comes through hearing. You've just heard the message of the gospel. Hear it again afresh. And through the Spirit, be made alive. The glorious gift of the gospel. Are you saved? Do you know Jesus? There is nothing we would love more. We don't want your money, even your membership. We don't want whatever. We just want you to know Jesus is Lord. That's why this church exists. That's why every church exists. We call on him and he will save you. Paul was passionate about this message. We too must be passionate about this message. It's this good news that changed his life. It's this good news that he knew would change others' lives. But you know, from town to town to town that he went to, he was met with resistance. He was met with people who rejected the gospel again and again and again and again. Read verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Um, So they rejected the gospel. They publicly reviled him. And for the first time that I can recall in the book of Acts, so all the times he's been rejected and reviled and persecuted, he shakes off his garments among them and says, God's wrath remains on your head. Your blood is not on my hands. I preach the gospel to you. I'm going to the Gentiles. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Now, I think there are times for us to dust off our feet and move on. They did do this in chapter 13 uh, when they left for Iconium. But I think there's more going on here that we don't want to miss. We keep reading verse 7 and 11, or through 11. After the rejection, Paul did move on to the Gentiles. He was welcomed into the home of a man named Titius Justus. This is not the same guy who wrote the letter of Titus. This is the only place he's mentioned. He was a guy who lived in the parsonage, right? I don't know, next door to the synagogue. Um, and then God saved the ruler of the synagogue, whose name was Crispus. He and his whole household were saved and baptized. And then the Lord even said to, uh, or many Corinthians heard the word and believed and were baptized. Uh, and then the Lord said to Paul in a vision, to not be afraid, to keep going. No one will harm you. The Lord has many in this city who are mine. And so after being rejected, 
Paul sees all this fruit. And he stays there in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching the word of the Lord. What I want to see here is that laboring in the gospel can be absolutely brutal some days, and then other days richly rewarding. There are days when it just, it stinks, man. People don't listen. Like, you try to share the gospel with people, and it just doesn't work. And you feel like the Lord's just not even in it. Like, what is happening? You're ready to throw in the towel. And then tomorrow comes, and like, somebody gets saved. You know? I love how people say, we had church, right? When something awesome happens on a Sunday, as if we didn't have church last Sunday. There's good days and bad days. If we just want the good days, you're not, gonna, you're not fit for Christian ministry. There's good days and bad days. Regardless of the good days or the bad days, we keep going. They don't listen? All right, let's move on. Let's keep preaching. Let's go to the next person. The Lord will give some who will listen. Regardless of the season that we are in, we won't see good days or bad days unless we persevere. We must endure. The third facet of faithful labor is perseverance. Maybe you've been working at something for weeks, months, years. It seems unfruitful. It seems like the Lord's not doing anything with it. Thinking about giving up. Maybe it's a new discipling relationship or a prayer group you've started. Or maybe you recently became a deacon even. Or you're starting some new ministry and it just doesn't seem to be fruitful. Maybe you're just trying to be more evangelistic in the workplace. Maybe um, whatever it is. You're starting to wonder if you're cut out for this. God's word, I think, would say to us this morning, be patient. Give it time. Be patient. Be occupied with the word. Be centered on Jesus. Persevere. Be patient. Paul Washer uh, famously says, what's the best time to plant an apple tree? What's the best time to plant an apple tree? 20 years ago. That's the best time to plant an apple tree. The next best time to plant an apple tree is today. So if you've been waiting 20 years or you've started today, know that fruit takes time. I've got a fig tree in my backyard that I planted when we first moved in, and it is scrawny. It's scrawny. It's just starting to get some leaves on it uh, for the springtime here. And, um, you know, it's probably going to be at least five or six years before I see a fig. But I love figs, so I'm going to hold out. That's how, we, that's how we serve the Lord. Amen? I'll skip some stuff. Um, last, last, last point. Faithful God. Faithful God. Most importantly, with faithful friends, knowing what faithful labor looks like, we also entrust ourselves to a God who is faithful. He does the work. The passage ends with this united attack on Paul from the local Jews in verses 12 through 17. Uh, Paul was seeing fruit, but then this huge riot formed, and they um, got before the local government, um, you know, and, and just tried to get rid of Paul, basically. God had saved the ruler of their synagogue, whose name was Crispus, and he had promised Paul in a vision that uh, the Lord had promised Paul in a vision that he wouldn't be harmed. There were more people on the Lord's side in Corinth that he would even didn't even know about, um, but they'd had enough. And, and so the locals, the Jews, decided to conspire with the local authorities to find Paul guilty of some crime, much like they did with Jesus in Jerusalem. 
And so they said to Gallio, he is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. He's breaking some sort of crime or committing some sort of crime. And just as Paul was about to defend himself, was just about to open his mouth, Gallio spoke first, who was the proconsul of the entire region of Achaia, so a dude who could do stuff. Um, and he basically says, yeah, y'all need to work this out on your own. I, I don't know what you want me to do here. If he had committed an actual crime or done something violent, you know, I'd be happy to help. But you guys are just quarreling about religion and your own law. Y'all need to work this out in-house. Um, he says, I refuse to be a judge of these things. So through this event with Gallio, which we see in other places in Scripture, Paul's going to have to testify later before governors and kings and things. Um, the Lord protected Paul. God promised in verse 9, I will protect you. No one will harm you in Corinth. Keep preaching. Verse 15, God protects him, and he sees no harm. God is faithful. God keeps his promises. He says, I'm going to do this. He's going to do it. Right? He's, he does the stuff he says he's going to do. So do you struggle with the fear of man? Here is the cure for the fear of man and not being afraid. Look on the faithfulness of God and be enthralled with his goodness. Say with the psalmist in Psalm 118, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with us. The Lord, the God of all creation, time, and space, who is infinitely holy, good, and wise, and powerful, knows you, cares for you, and fights for you. He's on our side. And he knows what we're going through. He knows what's going on in Spindale. He knows what's going on in your neighborhood. He knows the harm that others are seeking against you. And he says, trust me. Trust me. The Lord is with us. And the Lord is unchanging, which means he keeps his word. He is stronger than any organized, united attack from the wicked. He's stronger than any thorn in our side. He is stronger than the very gates of hell. For though the hordes of hell may rage, their power will not endure. Our times are in the Father's hand. Our anchor is secure. That's our new song. The Lord is faithful. He will always be faithful. Now here's the hard part. That song of the Lord's faithfulness in Paul's heart as he's released from whatever detention he was in, in Galeo's care, that's the same song that this dude named Sosthenes is supposed to sing. What happens in verse 17? They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. The Lord promised no harm would come to Paul. The Lord did not promise no harm would come to Sosthenes. Sosthenes apparently was a ruler of the synagogue, probably replaced Crispus after some time, or maybe they had multiple rulers, or maybe they booted him after he got saved. Uh, Sosthenes was a ruler who also evidently became a believer. Why would they beat him up otherwise, right? Paul was there for 18 months. A lot had happened. And here was this dude named Sosthenes, who we otherwise know nothing about, who was beat up by the Jews that he once ministered to because he converted to the way. It was Paul who they were targeting, but Sosthenes was the one beaten in his place 
as a public statement without any help from the courts who sat idly by that just said, hey, I'll help if there's a violent crime, made no mention of this. So here's the great theological question that demands our attention. Was God any less faithful to Sosthenes than he was to Paul? Was God any less faithful to Sosthenes than he was to Paul? God is either always faithful or never faithful. There's no in-between. So what about when the righteous suffer? Where is God then? He's on the same throne He's always been on, ruling and reigning with more wisdom and knowledge and goodness and justice than our minds could possibly comprehend. His ways are higher than our ways, and He means to do us good, even Sosthenes, beloved even to you. We don't know how Sosthenes responded to this event, but you know what? Sosthenes didn't give up. We know that from one verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians? Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Sosthenes would go on to travel with Paul to Asia and join the missionary team. Sosthenes was there when Paul penned the words of Scripture and wrote to the Corinthians from Asia. Sosthenes did not give up the good fight. Sosthenes was our brother. This otherwise unknown man forever lives in this text to testify to us that the gospel is worth suffering for and that God is more faithful than we could ever imagine. So Paul says, as we endure all things for the sake of the elect, 2 Timothy 2, here's why. For the saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. He's faithful. If we endure, we will also reign with him. He's faithful. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He will not deny his faithfulness. Beloved, there will be days that don't make any sense in the Christian race. But he tells us to be Athletes competing for a prize, training. And he tells us to be like good soldiers. Don't get entangled in civilian affairs. He tells us to be like hardworking farmers who get the first share of the crop when it comes. Trust the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Don't give up. Find good friends. Evaluate your kingdom work ethic. And trust him because he's faithful. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we believe that you are faithful. I pray that we would stick out our necks for one another, like Aquila and Priscilla and like Sosthenes. And we would be the kind of church that labors when times get hard, cares for one another when times get hard, and trusts in the Lord when times get hard. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For you are faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.